It often happened during the course of the Buddha's very long teaching career, 45 years, that he would be approached by members of the educated elite of the society and the cities and the communities that he moved through and engaged in um, perhaps friendly philosophical discussion, sometimes not so friendly philosophical debate with people that were trying to, to catch him up, show him up. And very often they would put to the Buddha questions that were sort of the philosophical tender of the day. So these, as they've come down to us, are things like, is the universe finite or infinite? Is the universe uh, limited or timeless, eternal? Is there a creator God or is there not? Questions like this, metaphysical questions. And the Buddha was very consistently and very spectacularly, spectacularly uninterested in engaging in any of these kinds of discussions, these metaphysical discussions. Uh, he was very much of the view that these are beside the point. These are really distractions from the, the core, the essence of spiritual life, which is what he consistently said that he was interested in talking about suffering and the end of suffering. This is really what was at the core of what interested the Buddha. And if we're honest with ourselves, at the core of what we're interested in. All of these metaphysical physical, uh, questions that human beings have historically grappled with are really in the service of that endeavor, of finding some way to be at ease in the world, finding some way to make sense of the world, to feel comfortable in it, and to be free from suffering through that means. So this is what the Buddha was concerned with, suffering and the end of suffering. This word suffering that shows up so much in the teachings as they're translated into English, and the original Pali, as some of you know, is dukkha. Dukkha is the word that's usually translated as suffering in English. Um, and it's a problematic word. Um, it's very difficult to translate. It's a concept that we just don't really have a word for in English. So when the Dharma first came to the West and some of the, the early teachings that were available were translated into English by British academics um, who had, very, had a very limited understanding of the principles behind the teachings, we got stuck with this translation of dukkha as, as suffering and the rendition of the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha, as the truth of suffering. And for better or worse, this is stuck, but it's had the effect of uh, giving Buddhism in kind of a, a broad popular understanding a somewhat pessimistic and doleful air. Um, suffering is a good first shot at translating dukkha. I mean, it makes sense that uh, they settled on this to begin with, um, but there's so much more to dukkha. <laughs> than just suffering. It's really much broader and deeper than that word connotes in English. When um, Kamala and I were working on uh, translating this the Mahasi Manual of Insight that we referred to, um, we had to settle on a translation for dukkha as well in our translation. And uh, the one that we settled on was unsatisfactoriness, which is an attempt to get at somewhat of this, this larger this broader meaning, deeper meaning of dukkha. But it's, it's a bit cumbersome 
It's hard to get through a Dharma talk saying unsatisfactoriness, unsatisfactoriness over and over again for me. Uh, so I like to usually just stick with the, the original Pali term of dukkha. It's a little easier to get out. So the term unsatisfactoriness points a little bit more to the aspect of, of dukkha, the truth of, of dukkha, this first noble truth, that uh, it's not so much that every moment of life is actively painful, right? I mean, we know that to be the case. Our lives are not, thank goodness, ones of unremitting unpleasantness, even though for some of us they may be quite difficult and have quite a lot of unpleasant experience. It's, it's not that. That's not, that's not that simplistic meaning. Tani Saro Bhikkhu, who some of you may be familiar with, who's a very prolific translator of the suttas from the Thai tradition, he likes to use the word stress for dukkha, which is kind of an interesting take on it. It also points to this, this broader field of dukkha. And uh, that's, that's also useful in many contexts. So again, it's not that every moment is actively painful, but there's a certain strain, a uh, certain something that's the opposite of peace that's going on, even in the midst of pleasant or neutral experiences. This is a quote from John Bullitt, who's a, another translator about dukkha. He says, one helpful rule of thumb, as soon as you think you've found the single best translation for the word, think again. For no matter how you describe dukkha, it's always deeper, subtler, and more unsatisfactory than that. <laughs> So what are the ways in which the world is unsatisfactory? What is dukkha actually? It's not quite just suffering, it's not quite just stress, it's not quite just unsatisfactoriness. Tanisara Bhikkhu also says, in the Pali Canon, dukkha applies both to physical and to mental pain and unease, ranging from intense anguish to the subtlest sense of being burdened. And the word dukkha literally uh, and the roots that it comes from in Pali has a sense of that which is hard to bear. That which is hard to bear. When the Buddha talks about uh, dukkha and the suttas, he usually gives this standard formula for it, or some version of this. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Association with the unloved is dukkha. Separation from the loved is dukkha. Not getting what is wanted is dukkha. In short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. Where the five aggregates of clinging is a shorthand for everything. (laughs) I don't know if we'll get more into that one on this retreat or not. (laughs) So we can think of dukkha as really the sum total of all the ways that this universe, this life, this moment let us down. And just the basic fact that the world is not designed to fulfill our desires. It's not designed that way. It operates according to its own laws, its own principles. It is very lawful. It is very uh, reasonable the way it operates. But always giving us what we want (laughs) is not one of the things that's built into it. So no matter how hard we try, and we all try very hard um, to get what we want, to find what we think will give us happiness in life, we can't always get what we want. 
Some of us have to cope with a greater quantity or quality of challenges in life, but even the most fortunate among us, which some of us here, you know, for sure fall into this category of some of the most fortunate beings on the planet. Um, Even those of us that have the best conditions in life have to deal with our fair share of disappointments and failures. Ajahn Mahabua, who is a, a great Thai forest master, called dukkha, whatever puts a squeeze on the heart. This really gets to the central point of, of dukkha, which is that it's just everything that's a source of suffering, everything that squeezes the heart. And sometimes it literally feels like that, and we can feel that squeeze on the heart. Traditionally, dukkha is um, separated into three levels, or three grades, uh, just to make it really excruciatingly clear to all of us what the Buddha was talking about. So the first type of dukkha is what's called dukkha dukkha, (laughs) which we could translate as the pain of pain, the suffering of suffering. So this kind of dukkha includes every kind of unpleasant experience. So it includes physical pain, whether it's from illness or injury, or just momentary discomfort in the body arising from any other conditions, any kind of unpleasant feeling in the body. And it also includes uh, mental pain, all of the unpleasant mental experiences that we have, um, bad memories, uh, destructive thoughts, obsessive fantasies, sadness, anger, fear, loneliness, uh, any kind of unpleasant mental experience that we can have. And we all tend to be aware of this level of dukkha. You know, even little kids know that there's dukkha dukkha in the world. It becomes clear very early in life. So we don't need to net- meditate to particularly see this level of dukkha. It includes the, the obvious things that, again, are often listed in the, the suttas, in the Buddha's teachings. Birth, aging, sickness, death experiencing what we don't like, losing what we do like. If we think just for a moment about our, our day here today, <laughs> have you experienced some moments of dukkha dukkha? You know, some moments of physical uh, unpleasantness, some moments of mental unpleasantness. All of this is dukkha dukkha. And it can be helpful to, to notice it in that way, to notice it as this, this kind of dukkha whether it's in our lives or in our meditation on a large scale or on a very microscopic scale that we see it here. This can be a good antidote for the denial of our culture, which puts out the message that we ought to be able to avoid or get rid of any kind of pain. Whatever it is, there's a pill for it (laughs) or some spiritual practice or physical practice we should be doing for it. Uh, if we can just just approach it the right way, we ought to be able to get rid of any kind of pain. This is a, a very uh, powerful message that permeates our society. But if we pay attention, we see that this is not how it is. That it's not a personal failing. It's, it's not that we're not good enough, that we can't eradicate pain from our lives. It's not personal. If we have a body and we have a mind there will be unpleasant feeling. It's actually not personal at all. It's not our fault. We have some influence, certainly, on maybe 
you know, the situations, the particular variety of unpleasantness that we get. It's not that we don't have any influence on unpleasant feeling that arises in our lives. But just the simple fact that it arises, that's not negotiable. That's, that's not up for negotiation. One way or another, whatever we do in our lives, we're bound to experience unpleasant feeling in the body and in the mind to completely eradicate it from our lives is not in our power. That's not within our realm. We, you know, we don't have that capacity. And we get to see this vividly here on retreat. You know, in, in the course of our ordinary lives, our default mode is to move away from pain, to avoid pain, to step aside, or to replace it with something else. And we do this so often and so automatically that usually we're not even aware of it most of the time. Just little adjustments that we make all day long, shifting the posture, thinking about something else, you know, picking up the screen, <laughs> whatever it might be. We're so conditioned and so accustomed to just automatically making these little movements away from pain that we tend not to notice them. But here on retreat, as you know, even if this is your very first retreat, uh, we get to really see uh, dukkha dukkha in operation. There are times when we just can't make the body comfortable, right? No matter how many different setups we try in the hall, no matter how much we lie down and try to rest the body, fast walking, slow walking, doing our yoga, mindful movement, you know, at times we just can't make the body happy. That's just the way it is. And just as much in the mind, you know, no, no matter how mindful we try to be, really try to build that concentration, cultivate loving kindness, <laughs> You know, the obsessive thoughts still come. The painful memories still come. Those thoughts and feelings that are unpleasant still come. We didn't invite or choose any of these unpleasant experiences, but they happen anyway because of causes and conditions. So not at random. It's actually very lawful how they, how they arise. But we don't get to make that final choice in all situations. So this is the truth of dukkha dukkha, the pain of pain. And it's a part of being a sentient being in this world with the nervous system. It comes with the territory. We inherited it. Dukkha dukkha. But there's a lot more to dukkha than just this obvious level that everybody is is aware of. If we go a little deeper in our, our observation, then at some point we come up against what's called viparinama dukkha. Viparinama dukkha, which means the pain of change, which is a less obvious kind of dukkha uh, that we may not get if we don't really pay attention. We can think of this as the pain of pleasure or the pain inherent in pleasure, sometimes called the uh, suffering of impermanence. So there are, there are two sides to the coin of the truth of impermanence. Uh, there's the upside, which is that unpleasant experiences change. But there's also the downside, which is that pleasant experiences also change. So this flavor of dukkha is the, the insecurity and the vulnerability that's inherent even in our happy moments, our pleasant moments, just simply because they don't last. So even as we're enjoying ourselves, that experience is evolving. And we never really know how it will evolve. Maybe uh, it will continue. Maybe we'll, we will get more of the same for a while. Maybe it'll get better. 
but maybe it'll get worse. And over time, eventually, certainly, it will be something different. So there's this inherent insecurity and vulnerability, even within pleasant experiences, the ones that we like. Uh, We could say that uh, every silver lining has a cloud. (laughs) So this is Viparinama Dukkha, the pain of change. And this one can be hard to see. You know, it may take, may take a while before we can really tune into this, that there is this underlying nervousness, this underlying fear, even in the midst of nice experiences. When we do start to tune into it, it can still be hard to accept, which can be an uncomfortable place in practice. And some of you have been bringing this up in the interview groups, of being in a place where we see uh, the, the vulnerability, we see the fear, we see the instability of experience. And we don't like it. <laughs> and it can take a long time to process this one and to start to come to a place of some equanimity with this, that this is really how it is. But as we practice, we do also come to see this variety of of dukkha. It might just be little glimpses at first, but it's important to begin to recognize that this is what's going on. Especially, um, this can become very apparent, this kind of suffering, if we have a good sitting. Has anybody had a good sitting on retreat so far? What do we usually mean by a good sitting? Hmm? We mean a pleasant sitting, right? (laughs) There's a saying around here that there's uh, nothing like a good sitting to ruin your retreat. (laughs) Because what happens? It changes. And then we want to get it back. So even as we we begin to pick up on this truth of viparinama, even within the pleasant experiences, the nice sittings when it's calm and maybe it's blissful, tranquil, the mind is relaxed and peaceful. Uh, There's this sense in the heart, somewhere in the heart, even if we're not thinking about it consciously, we start to begin to know which way the wind blows. (laughs) We start to to have that intuitive sense of the, the instability, the fragility, even of the nice experiences in life. And we do the same thing in our lives. As our understanding and awareness of this level of dukkha grows, as we start to gain this wisdom around viparinama dukkha, we start to notice how there is this fear, this uneasiness, this sense of dissatisfaction, even in the midst of our most wonderful experiences as we go through our days, go through our lives. Because we know, we know what happens to experience, it changes. Inevitably, there's none of them that we can hang on to. And we may become increasingly aware of that strain, the strain and the stress of not knowing when the shoe's going to drop and not being able to, to hold on or hang on. For myself, I've felt very much like uh, motherhood is one long exercise in Viparinama Dukkha. <laughs> you know? Where's my baby now? That baby that I love so much, you know, they're gone. Where's the toddler, you know, that was so cute and round and chubby? They're gone. You know, this is, parenthood is a, is a great training in Viparinama Dukkha, that having to, to let go and let go and let go, seeing how as good as it is and as good as what's coming is, 
that the change is inevitable. It's very bittersweet. I, I was talking with a friend of mine who's also a parent and a yogi a few years ago, and his parent, his kids are a little bit older than mine, and his youngest one was just coming up on school age, like mine is now, and he was talking about this this bittersweet feeling of Vipari Nama Dukkha that was permeating his relationship with his, his youngest child, and he described it as, uh, he felt like he was seeing his last sunset. We can have this feeling of just, just the, the bittersweetness, the poignancy uh, within pleasant, even pleasant experiences. There's a, a famous story from the time of the Buddha that illustrates the difference between uh, Dukkha Dukkha and Viparinama Dukkha. It's a story about uh, a handsome young man who was the son of a goldsmith who lived in Savati, which was one of the main cities in northern India. And this young man had grown up in his father's workshop, uh, apprenticing to learn all the qualities of gold and how to make all kinds of beautiful ornaments from it. And one day he was out in the streets running errands for his father, and he happened to see the venerable Sariputta, walking out on his alms round, gathering his one meal for the day. And he was so struck by the the nobility, the nobility of the bearing and the the radiant countenance of the venerable Sariputta, that without really thinking about it, he just kind of trailed along behind him, entranced. And Sariputta turned and spoke with him a little bit. And this young man began to, to seek out Sariputta, day after day as he was on his alms round and to, to speak with him more and more about the Dhamma, which seemed very uh, appealing and attractive to him. And eventually he was able to convince his father to allow him to leave home and to become a monk under the venerable Sariputta's guidance. Now Sariputta, who was said to be second only to the Buddha in wisdom, reflected that this new monk was very young and very handsome, and used to being around beautiful things, and was probably very inclined towards craving for sense pleasure and attachment to beauty. So Sariputta gave him the instruction to practice Asubha Bhavana, which is uh, the reflection on the repulsiveness of the body. And specifically at that time, this would involve going to the charnel grounds and meditating on corpses in various stages of decay which is still done uh, today in some parts of the world in various ways, either directly or indirectly. It's said to be a, uh, a very good way to curb sensual desire. <laughs> so the young monk was very enthusiastic. He's very inspired by his teacher, and he took up this practice with a lot of sincerity, a lot of enthusiasm, and followed Sariputta's instructions as best he could. But four months came and went, and he hadn't made the slightest progress in his meditation. He was just spinning his wheels. Sariputta was surprised that his approach hadn't worked, but eventually had to admit that something was, was not working right with this young monk. So he brought him to visit the Buddha, who saw with his psychic power that this person had been a goldsmith for his last 500 existences and that his mind was understandably very attuned to the qualities of gold. So the Buddha took a different approach with him. Using his supernormal powers, he created a radiant radiant golden lotus flower out of the air, which he then 
gave to the, to the young monk, saying, uh, take this flower and find a quiet spot to sit and gaze at it, noticing golden, 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 as you contemplate its golden color. The young monk was delighted with this new meditation compared to what Sariputta had had him doing. (laughs) And he gladly took the flower and and did as the Buddha instructed, found a quiet spot and sat and looked at this uh, supernatural golden flower, completely enthralled and fascinated by its beauty. And in doing this, his mind became very concentrated, very still, very peaceful, very tranquil. The Buddha, meanwhile, was keeping tabs on the monk's meditation, and when he saw that the monk was in the right frame of mind, he caused the golden lotus to begin to wither slowly and to fade, and gradually one petal after another withered and fell to the ground. And without thinking too much about it, the young monk got the truth of Viparinamadukkha, that no matter how beautiful an experience, it's bound to change. Not just that flower, but everything around him, everything within him. And as he contemplated in this way, he soon became one of the arahants, a fully enlightened being. I like this story also because uh, it illustrates the importance of finding the right doorway and finding the right path for each of us depending on our conditioning, depending on our, our temperaments and our personalities. So we don't necessarily need to tackle dukkha-dukkha head-on continuously to be able to wake up. It often works better if we do take a gentler approach. Uh, There are said to be three doorways to awakening. So the first of these is the doorway of dukkha, through the understanding of all the ways in which the world is unsatisfactory. Uh, The next one is anicca, the truth of impermanence seeing the incredible instability and changing of experience. And the third one is anatta, the impersonal nature of experience, that it's not all coming from us, it's not all under our control, that things happen for their own reasons, according to their own laws and nature. Which, which all of these three doorways really lead to the same uh, chamber, the same chamber of awakening. They're like different facets of a jewel, different angles that we can see the truth from. So things are dukkha, things are unsatisfying or unsatisfactory uh, precisely because they change. We can't hold on to them. And things change because they're impersonal, because we can't control them. So these three characteristics aren't different separate truths, but just different aspects of the same truth, the truth of how things are. And at different times, one or the other of them may be more apparent to us. For some of us, it is the hard route through dukkha that is our path. Some of us just seem to have that um, karma in life, that this is the path of our spiritual awakening, is through uh, a lot of uh, seeing dukkha in all of its various forms. That uh, for some of us it is dukkha that really opens us up to compassion and to wisdom. Uh, For others it may be a different door, or at different times it may change. We all tend to hope that uh, dukkha is not our door. (laughs) Most of us would rather go through a different door. Um, But all of us at some point are going to have to spend, you know, on this path some time coming 
to terms and taking a good look at dukkha. The, the path of dukkha is said to be the fastest <laughs> because there's such a sense of urgency <laughs> that comes out of dukkha. So it can really be quite motivating. You know, it can really put the fire under our spiritual practice, give us a sense of urgency that we need to get to work and address this problem of suffering. There is still more to dukkha <laughs> beyond these first two levels. So there's dukkha dukkha, the pain of pain. There's viparinama dukkha, the pain of change or the pain of pleasure. And there's also said to be a third level of dukkha called sankara dukkha. And this one is the most subtle. It's, it's the hardest to see and also the hardest to accept. Uh, this could maybe be translated as the oppression of existence itself or the burden of experience it. We can think of it as just the, the constant agitation that's inherent in being alive. So as long as we're alive, there are all sorts of things that we have to do to, to remain alive. <laughs> we have to take care of the body or get somebody else to do it for us. Uh, we have to feed it and empty it and clean it and clothe it and rest it and take care of it when it's sick or when it's injured. Uh, and we've also got to take care of the mind or get somebody else or something else to do it for us. Uh, we have to keep it occupied and entertained, reasonably happy, reasonably calm, reasonably healthy. And we or someone else has got to stay on top of all of those things on a pretty regular basis or else we don't get to stay alive anymore. <laughs> That's the bargain that we're stuck in. So we can't just decide, you know, I've really had enough of eating. It's just kind of a drag. It's a lot of effort. You know, it's expensive. I just, I'm just going to skip that for a while. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work that way. This is non-negotiable. It's negotiable to a point, but it's not ultimately negotiable. The process of being alive just places all sorts of demands on us. And we've got to respond to those demands in an adequate way. And that's a kind of dukkha. It's a a burden. It's a source of stress, oppression. On an even subtler level, there's just no break from all of the sense experience that life imposes on us. So we also can't decide, you know, I've had enough of, of smelling. Yeah, I've been just been encountering a lot of really foul smells. It's you know, it doesn't really add anything to my life. I'm just going to turn off the nose for a while. You know, we don't get to decide that. We've got these sense organs, and there's stimulus that's constantly coming in through them and being received. And as long as they're functioning, we have to uh, take all of that in and process it as best we can. So again, we can negotiate some. You know, we can go to sleep, try to find escape and sleep. We can take various substances, again, to try to find some escape. But in the end, that's also just more dukkha. And the idea that there really is any escape from this level of of dukkha in the the world that we know, in this conditioned world, is ignorance, delusion. This is sankhara dukkha, the oppression of experience. And it may be a while before we can really connect with this level of dukkha. It's not immediately apparent. It's quite subtle. It usually comes out of uh, very deep, sustained concentration and a longer retreat. And it's said to be close to awakening, 
close to, to nibbana, close to freedom, seeing this level, this very subtle level of dukkha. So these are our three options for dukkha. <laughs> dukkha dukkha, the pain of pain, viparinama dukkha, the pain of pleasure, and sankara dukkha, the pain of just being alive. <laughs> So if this topic is a total bummer for you, (laughs) I actually love to talk about dukkha. (laughs) That's very much my path. But it can be a little bit depressing, um, especially if we're experiencing it in our own practice. So I invite you to keep an open mind. Uh, Keep in mind that our relationship to, to dukkha can and does transform through this practice that we're doing. In fact, this is the only way that we can transform our relationship to dukkha. I remember sitting in on an interview um, some years ago when I was in, in training to teach. Uh, I was sitting as, as Tara is, and, you know, listening in and eavesdropping on the interviews, which was really valuable. And I remember a yogi coming in to speak with one teacher, saying that you know his body was filled with pain, his mind was totally racked with unpleasant, obsessive thoughts, and what good was it? What was the point of it? This was a yogi who was kind of stuck in dukkha mode, which can happen to us at times. You know, at times we do get stuck in a place in our practice or just need to spend some time at a place in our practice where this truth of dukkha is really big, really front and center and dominating our experience. And I found this teacher's uh, advice to, to this yogi very interesting. He didn't say that, well, he needed to, to transform his relationship to the dukkha or, or just open and relax and accept it as it was, be okay with it, but just to keep an open mind, just to keep the possibility in the mind that it might be possible to have a different relationship to these experiences that there were were other people in the world that experienced similar kinds of physical suffering, similar kinds of mental suffering, but were able to hold it in a much different way, with lightness and freedom. And just to to keep that possibility in the mind as something that was accessible through the practice. So it's actually the relationship to dukkha that's the problem, not the dukkha itself. That's how we're relating to this truth of how things are that actually causes the suffering. This is a, a quote from Ajahn Suwad, a great Thai master. He said, is a mountain heavy? It may be heavy in and of itself, but as long as we don't try to pick it up, it won't be heavy for us. So this is the way that we transform suffering. This is the way that we transform our relationship to dukkha. This is the way that we arrive at the end of suffering. If we think about it, this this threefold traditional description of dukkha in and of itself is really just a very clear and accurate description of how, how it is, of what it's like to be in this world with a nervous system as a sentient being. It's really very clinical. It's very straightforward. It's very matter-of-fact. If we have a nervous system, this is what we'll experience. This is how it operates, you know. Unpleasant experiences happen. Pleasant experiences change. As long as we're alive, we can't just shut off the nervous system. There's no off button on it. We have to experience whatever mix of, of pleasure and pain and neutral experiences come our way. This is just simply the truth 
of how it is to have a nervous system. So if we take it in that very, just kind of matter of fact, straightforward way, what's the problem, (laughs) right? This is just how it is. And for some of us, it can be really freeing and really liberating just to, you know, have this laid out for us. Again, in the face of, of everything that we tend to hear from society, all the denial of dukkha that is inherent in our, in our culture and in our society. This is just simply the way that it is. There's no judgment in it, good or bad. It's just the truth of how things are. Sometimes I ask myself, um, you know, in my practice, when I'm sitting, meditating, and I'm just kind of, you know, I'm present, I'm with the body and the mind, watching things arise, watching things pass, sensations in the body, thoughts going through the mind. Um, But still there's some sense of dissatisfaction with the experience, some sense that something is wrong. I'll ask myself as a little mantra, you know, what's the problem? (laughs) You know, it's just physical sensations coming and going, it's just mental phenomena coming and going. What is the problem? And uh, invariably, (laughs) you know, if I'm really honest with myself, uh, the answer, the problem is that I want something else to be happening. (laughs) I want something else than what that moment is is giving me. You know, that's the problem. It's not that the moment inherently is flawed. It's that I want something else. I want it to be different. It's not inherently a problem that my nervous system is wired the way that it is or that it responds to stimulus the way that it does, but it's that I want it to be otherwise. When unpleasant experiences come, I want it to be otherwise. (laughs) When pleasant experiences leave, I want it to be otherwise. When I want to just take a break from it all (laughs) and get a little rest, and I can't, I want it to be otherwise. So this is how the, the impersonal truth of dukkha, which just describes how things are, transforms into my personal suffering and my problem, wanting it to be different. And it's the same for all of us. We suffer because we want things to be other than they are, uh, which is a losing battle. (laughs) This is the problem with this approach to life, because things are as they are, and we can't change that. It's true on this very microscopic level that we get to see here in retreat, moment by moment, and it's true on, on the big scale of the larger events and circumstances of our, our lives and our world. Sharon Salzberg uh, shares a, a, a sweet story, bittersweet story, about a friend of hers who had to explain to her four-year-old son that the woman who had been providing childcare for him, who had really been a primary caretaker for him since he was born, was, was moving away and it was going to be leaving his life. Uh, And because her child was very attached to this person, uh, the mother very carefully told him about it in a gradual way, step by step, um, making it clear that the caregiver still loved him and uh, that they'd be able to write and talk by phone and maybe visit sometimes, but that she would be moving away and going to live with her sister. And the little boy listened very carefully, kind of taking it in, and then said to his mother, Mommy, tell me that story again, but with a different ending. (laughs) It doesn't really change so much from when we're four. Uh, My son also uh, recently went through this phase where 
he just didn't want to hear about it. You know, he'd be um, caught up in some play, you know, with his, his toys, you know, in the morning as we were getting ready to school, to go to school. And then I'd, I'd give him the warning, okay, it's time to go to school. And he would say, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> he would say, don't, don't say that. <laughs> don't tell me that. <laughs> and, and that's a very much <laughs> how we continue to react to the truth of dukkha. <laughs> we get a little more sophisticated in our languaging. <laughs> but the basic response isn't going to evolve a whole lot unless we do something to shift how we're relating. Unless, we, unless there's an intervention you know, through this practice or, or a practice like it that, that shifts the direction, moves us in a different direction of how we're relating to suffering. When I look in my practice, I'm amazed by how ubiquitous the wanting mind is, you know, how omnipresent it is, how many moments of the day I'm wanting something other than what I'm experiencing, sometimes in, in very obvious, very powerful ways, strong ways, sometimes in very subtle ways, in a very uh, quiet voice, wanting something else. This, this continuous wanting for things to be other than they are is so much a permanent feature of the mental landscape that for the most part we take it completely for granted. And it's, it's so often there that we don't even see it. You might reflect how, mo- how many moments today did you want a different experience than you were having? Like honestly, how much of the day was that? Usually it's a lot. You know, most of those moments, if we're honest with ourselves, we really would have preferred a different experience. Maybe not all of them but a lot of them. And when we do see ourselves wanting something else, when we catch this, when we are able to pick up on this, wanting things to be different, then we tend to feel bad about it, especially on this path. We tend to feel like, well, I'm a a bad yogi because I really don't want this physical pain. (laughs) I'm a bad yogi because I really don't want this obsessive thought train again, you know. Or I'm a bad yogi because I'm bored where I'm a bad yogi because I just really want to get that great experience that I had yesterday again. You know, we tend to take this very personally. But this is really a misunderstanding of the situation. Again, just as with the truth of dukkha, this this tendency of the mind to want things to be otherwise uh, is a misunderstanding of the situation. It's, It's not personal, all of this wanting. It's just lawful. It's our conditioning. We're all deeply conditioned. Uh, Just as the deer and the birds and the gnats are to seek pleasure and avoid pain. And with good evolutionary reason. You know, there's a reason that we're wired this way. There's a reason that we have this natural inclination to move away from what's painful, to move towards what's pleasant. Um, and that's to say nothing of the additional conditioning that comes from this culture, the society that we're raised up in, that just reinforces that tendency. So to take all of this conditioning to, to want, to want something else, to want what's pleasant, to not want what's unpleasant, to take all of this personally is really to misunderstand the situation. And it can be a big hindrance in practice because it can, can make it harder for us to see what's really going on. It can make us uh, unwilling to really look and see what's happening with all of this wanting when we feel like it, it's all about me. It all reflects on me. 
It's, it's making me look bad. It's making me feel bad about myself. And it's really important to look and to see this tendency to want, to want something else. Because this is the source of our suffering. This is where we get into the struggle with dukkha, where we get into an unhealthy relationship with dukkha, is through wrestling with it, trying to push it away, trying to get something else. The traditional teachings give three varieties of wanting that we tend to fall into. The first is just simply for pleasant experience. And we all see this over and over again very clearly here. Really, we want to have a pleasant experience. (laughs) You know, again, this is nothing to take personally. But, you know, whatever's going on in the moment, if it's not pleasant, we'd rather have a pleasant experience. Let's be honest. So intellectually, mostly we can probably recognize the accuracy of the Buddha's description of dukkha. You know, of course we're bound to have unpleasant experiences. Of course we're bound to lose pleasant experiences. And of course we don't have an off button anywhere to shut off the nervous system. Intellectually, this this mostly makes sense to us. We can accept it on an intellectual level. But we're so deeply conditioned that when a moment of unpleasantness, or even a neutral moment, arises, that we want pleasure... And if we're not paying attention, if there's not the training in mindfulness, if we're, if we're an untrained worldling, then the tendency is to just immediately seek pleasure. And this can really come to rule our lives. This could be seeking out some kind of pleasant experience through the physical senses, you know, a nice cup of tea, or a nice uh, lie down in the soft bed, or a nice hot shower, you know, you can insert whatever your favorite sense pleasure is here. Uh, It could be some kind of intellectual pleasure, you know, reading a good book, having a stimulating conversation with a friend, uh, watching our favorite show. Or it could even be seeking out emotional pleasure. We tend to not think of this as a form of sense pleasure, but this is another way of seeking pleasant experience, you know, spending time with the people that we love. You know, re- recalling a good memory, hugging our child. The problem with this approach to trying to, to combat dukkha is that it leaves us constantly chasing after the next desire. It leaves us constantly craving. If we don't get what we're craving, then we're dissatisfied and we have to change course and start looking for something else. If we do get what we're craving, then we enjoy it for a while and it either ends or we lose interest in it. And again, we have to start looking for something else to give us that shot of pleasure. So there's never an end to the craving for pleasant feeling. There's never an end to the search for pleasant feeling. It's endless. We can, and most of us do, go round and round and round on this quest throughout our lives, searching for, for the next uh, shot of pleasant experience. This is what we call the round of samsara, the wheel of samsara. And it's inherently unpeaceful because there's never any rest in it. It's endless. I sometimes find it uh, entertaining to uh, reflect on the peak experiences of my life, which I've been fortunate to have some, some moments of real uh, delight, really intense joy, really intense pleasure, really intense gratification. And you might just think for yourself, you know, what are those peak moments? You know, the, 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 the peak of a love affair when we're at that, that sweet spot, when it's so uh, gratifying and so delightful. 
or, or giving birth to our children or holding our children for the first time or doing some really uh, marvelous activity, you know, skydiving, bungee jumping, or, or just having a quiet moment in a, in a beautiful place on the beach, you know, whatever it was for us. They're usually those few moments that stand out as the really peak experiences of our lives. Where are they now? <laughs> They're gone, like everything else. You know, sometimes in the quiet of a retreat we can really get this. Those moments were wonderful when they happened, did they satisfy us? You know, do we feel like we never need to have a wonderful meal again? We never need to see another sunset. We never need to make love again. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> they don't satisfy. They're good while they happen and then they're gone and the hunger is still there. The wanting is still there. A, a variation on wanting is uh, the second type of wanting that's described in the teachings, which is to create some kind of different conditions in the future. So this is wanting to become something that we think that will then allow us to experience pleasure or to be happy, be happier. So if I could just get more concentrated, if I could just become more mindful, if I could just become more loving, you know, if I could just become richer, thinner, more popular, whatever it is that we kind of hang our hopes on. There's this thought that if only I could become X, then everything will kind of fall into place. Or maybe it's X, Y, and Z. If only I could make more progress in my therapy, (laughs) or sort out this relationship, or get enlightened, have some real insight, then, you know, things would start to line up and be okay. The problem with this kind of wanting is that just as with the first one, it actually is a training in dissatisfaction. (laughs) The feeling that what we have now is not okay. You know, we're waiting for some time in the future, chasing after some time in the future when things will all fall into place. But the truth of dukkha is that things will never permanently fall into place. Again, the world's not designed that way. Or we could go to the flip side of this too. Some of us are more inclined towards uh, wanting, some of us are more inclined towards not wanting. You can kind of take your pick. It's two sides of the same coin. So we might uh, go down the path of thinking, well, if I could just get rid of this knee pain, or if I could just get rid of the sleepiness, or if I could just get rid of this obsessive fantasy, you know, then I could really wake up and feel okay. Experience would be pleasant again. Or if I could just get, get out of this job or get out of this relationship or get out of the city or whatever it is. If I could just get rid of some condition, then things would be okay. So we're conditioned to fall into these various types of wanting in response to dukkha and we suffer. This is where our suffering comes from. So this is, this is kind of the bad news <laughs> in the dukkha. The good news is that it it is possible to transform our relationship to dukkha. And it has to be through recognizing both the dukkha and the craving around it, neither of which are personal. It has to be through clearly seeing those, being willing to open our eyes to those, that uh, we're able to transform how we're relating to them. If If we don't recognize the problem, then we can't find the solution. So we have to start by opening our eyes and overcoming our denial and our resistance to these first and second noble truths. The truth of dukkha and the truth of craving as the cause of suffering. So maybe that's more bad news. (laughs) We have to actually open to these things 
uh, to get through them and to get beyond them. But there really is no other way. It takes a lot of mindfulness and a lot of faith, a lot of wisdom and energy and concentration, kindness, compassion, courage, patience, and many other supportive qualities, all of which we're cultivating as we walk along our path, all of which we're cultivating through this very simple practice. But when we do open to these truths, then the relationship to dukkha can begin to shift. So we will start to have those moments when it feels okay for things to be just as they are. Then you may be experiencing some of those, maybe even just briefly here on retreat. A few moments when it's just okay to be here and for things to be how they are. It's okay if they're unpleasant. It's okay if they're neutral. Uh, There's not the grasping if they're pleasant. We describe these... uh, one of our teachers described these periods of, of the, the craving falling away and being able to just rest in experience as kind of a mini enlightenment. We can get a little bit of a, a taste of the flavor of what it means to, to be in the world without struggling with the truth of dukkha. So this is the direction that the practice is heading towards being able to be in reality as it is with bodies and minds that are wired as they are, uh, without struggling, without fighting. It's said that the greatest peace is to be able to live with, in accordance with things as they are, to live in harmony with things as they are, which is the greatest peace. There's a great story from the commentaries uh, about... Uh, teacher called the Venerable Mahasiva who lived uh, sometime after the time of the Buddha but was a very uh, prominent teacher, had a large center, taught many students and one day one of his uh, enlightened students came to visit him and uh, with his supernormal powers he explored the mind of his venerable teacher, the Mahasiva and was astounded to find that he was not even a little bit enlightened himself. So the student kind of called him, called Mahasiva on this. He said, you're living your life like a chair. (laughs) You're supporting others, but not attending to your own practice. At which Mahasiva felt a little embarrassed, a little abashed. So he thought, well, I'll go off um, away for a weekend and meditate a little bit and get enlightened (laughs) so that I won't have this kind of embarrassment in the future. You know, for somebody like me, I'm such a great teacher. It shouldn't be too hard. You know, just a few days should do it. So he gathered a few things and didn't even tell anybody he was leaving. He figured, I'll be back before they miss me. And he went off and he found a secluded valley to practice in and a few days came and went and he was very surprised to find that he wasn't enlightened yet. So he thought, well, the rainy season is coming up. I'll, you know, I'll just stay here through the rainy season. There was a little town nearby where he could get some alms, a little bit of food. And definitely by the end of the rainy season, at the end of the three-month retreat, I'll be enlightened. Because it was known that many people got enlightened, fully enlightened, during the three-month retreat. But lo and behold, three months came, three months went, and Mahasiva was not yet enlightened. So now he began to panic a little bit. <laughs> And he started to become quite despondent. And it's said that from that point forward, Mahasiva uh, kept his bed roll, his, his bed mat rolled up. He didn't even bother lying down to sleep. He became absolutely determined to attain enlightenment so that he could show everyone his great attainment and, and, and keep face in front of his students. 
And one year passed, and five years passed, and 20 years passed, and Mahasiva was still not enlightened. And every year on the anniversary of uh, the end of that first rains retreat, Mahasiva would sit down in his little valley and cry bitter tears of disappointment. Until one day, uh, there was a deva passing through the forest, a forest spirit. And he happened to notice Mahasiva sitting and crying on the anniversary of the rains retreat, as was his wont. And he thought he would uh, goad Mahasiva a little bit. So he also started crying. <laughs> which Mahasiva perked up and he looked around. He said, who's there? Because hardly anybody ever came through his secluded little valley. And the deva replied, oh, it is I, sir, a deva. And Mahasiva asked, well, what are you doing here crying in this valley? To which the deva replied, well, I saw how you were practicing and I figured I'd be able to attain, be able to attain at least one or two stages of enlightenment just by sitting and crying. <laughs> And with a little laugh, (laughs) he disappeared, which really made an impression on Mahasiva. He thought, oh my gosh, has it come to this where I'm being mocked by passing devas? (laughs) But then he reflected a little bit on what the deva had said and realized that it was true, that all of this time he had been practicing with a spirit of despondency and craving, wishing for things to, to happen that weren't happening and not keeping his mind focused on what was just in front of him. So he reached down and slowly pulled up his socks (laughs) and focused his mind on just what was in front of him without judgment, without taking it personally, just seeing clearly what was in front of him. And by the end of that rains retreat, Mahasiva had become one of the arahants and attained full enlightenment. So let's sit for a moment. So we have some time for walking now and then a little chanting and a short sit to end the day. If you haven't joined us yet, feel free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.